For more than 3,300 years, the Jewish people have preserved and transmitted their wisdom about how to live life. From generation to generation, parents taught their children, teachers taught their students, in a living chain that stretches back to the giving of that great wisdom in the Sinai Desert. Perhaps never has there been a generation more desperately in need of this ancient wisdom. A wisdom today made available to the English-speaking world by scholars like Lawrence Kellerman. Sit back and enjoy while Lawrence Kellerman takes you on an adventure into the world of ancient wisdom for modern minds. The story that I, I want to tell you tonight began when a few years ago I was standing outside of the surgical theater of a particular hospital in Jerusalem which will have to remain unnamed for reasons you will understand shortly. And as I was standing outside the surgical theater, the nurse came running out and she ran up to me and she said, I think this is yours. And I said, yes, that is mine. She handed me my newborn baby boy. And I took this little baby and she said, come with me. And she walked me back to the room where they put in the eye drops and suction out the, the nose. My wife had just had an emergency cesarean section and my wife was on her way to recovery. And I held this little boy while they, they cleaned this little boy up. When they were done cleaning him up, they wrapped him up in a little towel and put him into this rolling bassinet and barely holding back the tears, I rolled my newborn son down the hall to my wife who was in recovery. And there, I put the little baby on top of my wife and we both laughed and we cried and we were very, very happy. Baruch Hashem, a little newborn boy. I stayed with my wife that day for several hours and then towards the afternoon I, I had to go home and take care of the kids and take care of certain things that need to be done when a baby's born, registration with the government, etc. So I, I, I said to Hannah that, uh, you know, take it easy, feel good, and I'll be back tomorrow. And I took off. I came back the next morning. And when I walked in the next morning, my wife, who had just had a cesarean section about 12 hours earlier, was standing in a corner of the room, cradling the baby in her arms, rocking back and forth. And I said, what are we doing? And she said, uh, I'm rocking a baby. So I said, yes, but how are you standing up? She said, I feel great, the scar's healed. Okay, for those of you who are not familiar, when they do a cesarean section, they cut through every layer. I said to her, you know, I think maybe you should sit down on the bed, take it easy. And she said, no, really, really, the scar's healed, I'm really fine. So I think, you know, maybe the anesthetic didn't wear off yet, you know. Fine, so I said, I'd just like to get a doctor. So I went and I got the doctor, and I said, you know, my wife is standing up in a corner rocking the baby. And he said, she's doing what? And he came running into the room and said, like, what are you doing? Get back in bed. And between the two of us, we got her to sit down on the bed. But she said, I'm really fine. My scar is healed. I don't need to lay down. Fine. I sat with her for a few hours. And then after a few hours, I, I said, you know, listen, this thing's got to be taken care of. So I'm going to go. But I'll see you again tomorrow morning. Just take it easy. So I left. I came back very early the next morning. When I came back early the next morning, I walked in and there were, there were two women in this room and the other woman who had had the cesarean section the same morning as my wife was laying there sleeping, but my wife's bed was empty. And I panicked and I, I probably shouldn't have done this, but I woke the lady up and I said, where's my wife? And the lady looked over and said, 
I don't know, when I went to sleep, she was laying there. And I went running out of the room, tearing down the hall. As I'm running down the hall, I see someone very familiar going the other way. So I said, Hannah, where are you going? She said, I'm going for a walk. You want to come? Yeah. So you know, I'm chasing her around. She's, you know, she's down in the garden. Yeah, she's walking around. And you know, after a couple of hours, I finally got her back upstairs again. And she sat down in the bed. And I said, you know, I really am worried. And she said, I'm fine. I'm telling you the scar is healed. I said, it can't heal that fast. She said, I'm telling you it's healed. Fine. I stayed with her a few more hours. Left. The next morning, I came back very early. And I remember I was walking up the stairs. I took the stairs up to her floor. And as I was getting to her floor, I heard what sounded like muffled screaming. And I remember I went through the double doors on her floor. And when I went through the double doors on her floor to go out onto the floor, the screaming was getting louder. And I approached her wing. And when I went through the double doors leading into her wing, the screaming was piercing. And as I walked down the hall, I realized it was coming from her room. So I, I approached her room. And as I got to her room, I saw the source of the screaming. It was the doctor who was standing in the hallway of her room, screaming at my wife. And as I walked up and he saw it was the husband, he turned around and he said to me, get your wife out of here! We take no responsibility! Get her out of here! I said, what's going on? He says, your wife is running around the hospital. She just had a serious section. This is very dangerous. We take no responsibility. She's out of here! And I was like, good job, Hannah. <laughs> and they threw us out of the hospital. They, uh, they sent my baby for a well baby checkup and the doctor said your baby's fine and they, they checked my wife. Amazingly, three days after cesarean section, my wife's scar was healed. We don't know why it healed so quickly, but uh, it was an amazing thing. And they said, you know, your wife is fine, your baby's fine, get out of here. So, uh, fine. We left. They said, have a nice bris milah, goodbye. <laughs> and uh, we went home. We started to plan for the bris milah. It was going to be a few days later. So I called the yeshiva and I asked the yeshiva, could we hold the bris milah in the yeshiva, the circumcision, could we do it in the yeshiva? And they said, no problem. So I ordered a I got a caterer, and I got a photographer. I went to my Rebbe, I asked my Rebbe, would you hold the baby during the bris? And he said, no problem. Everything is ready to go. It's the seventh night, the night before the eighth morning when we're going to do the bris. And Han and I are sitting in the living room, and we're schmoozing, and Han says to me, you know, I was thinking about it, and I've decided... I don't want to give this kid a bris milo. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and she said, you know, I was thinking about it. I decided I don't want to give this boy a bris milo. Now, at this point, I realized what must have happened. When they put the epidural in, it must have gone up instead of down. And it was affecting her brain, yeah? So I, I said, like, what are you talking about? So Hannah says, you know, I, I don't think the baby's well. So besides being an incredibly intuitive mother, she has a lot of background in first aid. And I took this very seriously. So I said to her, what's the problem? So Hannah says, you know, I, I just can't put my finger on it. So I realized she must be panicked. So I said, okay, let's, let's go through it. Is the baby nursing okay? Yes, yeah, the baby nursing's great. Um, muscle tone? She says, fine. I said, uh, uh, did you check the pulse? Yeah, pulse is fine. Uh, uh, eye dilation? She said, I checked. Eye, eye dilation's great. So I said, what makes you think there's something wrong? So she says, you know, I just have this feeling. I said, great, right? At this point, I realized nothing's wrong. But she's panicked. What happens the night before the bris? So I said, great, no problem. Let's do this. Let's go right now, you and me. We'll go down to Shari Tzedek, or we'll go to Tarim, one of the emergency medical services, and we'll have them do a well baby checkup. Now, if something's wrong, they'll pick it up. If nothing's wrong, 
but we can go ahead with the bris. So Hannah says, no. <laughs> so I said, you know, what's that? No, no one's going to catch it, she says. I'm not going to head with the bris. The bris is off. So I was thinking, this is a problem. <laughs> so I said, how about Jules? Would it be okay if Jules said we could go ahead with the bris? So she thinks and she says, Jules? Jules I would trust. Who's Jules? <laughs> so Jules is my brother-in-law. My sister married this very famous cardiologist who besides being an ingenious researcher, he's a real mensch and he has tremendous bedside manner. So Hannah said, if Jules would check the baby, I would go for it. So coincidentally, Jules was on sabbatical that year. He was the head of a hospital in California, but he was on sabbatical doing work, research in microbiology at Albert Einstein. So I figured, you know, like it's, you know, it's only 10,000 miles and we've got 12 hours. Let's see what we can do, yeah? So I get on the phone and this is quite late at night. This is now probably, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night, 11.30 at night. And I called Jules on the phone. He says, late, why are you calling so late? So I said, Jules, it's the baby. Baby, what's wrong with the baby? I said, Jules, I don't think anything's wrong with the baby. But Hannah's panicked and she won't let me go ahead with the bris. Sound serious? Put her on. So I hand the phone to Hannah and I can only hear half the conversation. But I hear Hannah saying, no, Jules, no, 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 pulse is fine. No, baby's nursing. Uh, muscle tone's good. No. No. Okay, just a minute. So she hands the phone back to me, and Jules says, listen, the baby's probably fine, but you cannot give a brismila, he says, you can't give a brismila to a child whose mother is panicked. It's not nice. <laughs> he says, you got to calm her down. I said, Jules, I'm trying. I don't know what to do. So he says, I got a plan. I said, I'm sold. What is it? So Jules says, I have a friend. You know how all these doctors hang out together? So he says, I've got a friend who's also a cardiologist. In fact, he was the head of cardiology at Shari Tzedek. And Jules says, this guy is so amazingly impressive that your wife will take one look at him. She'll trust him. He'll say, baby's fine. And then she'll let you go ahead with the bris. So I said, Jules, I'm sold. Sell her. So he says, put her back on the phone. So I hear Hannah get back on the phone, and Hannah says, no, 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 I think it's a bad idea. No. What do you mean? Okay, okay. So she hands me back the phone. I get on the phone. Jules says, go now. Yeah. So he tells me the name of the doctor, Dan Sivoni, who's head of cardiology at Shari Tzedek. So I hang up the phone. First thing I do is I've got to make sure the guy's there. It's 1130 at night. So I call up Shari Tzedek and I say, can I please speak to Dr. Dan Sivoni? So they transfer me to cardiac and the secretary gets on and she says, you know, I'm sorry, Dr. Sivoni can't speak with you. He's doing rounds. I said, thank you very much. Bye. And I hang up. Yes, that's all I needed to know. So I said to Hannah, quick, let's go. So Khan and I run downstairs, we hop in a taxi, we shoot over to Shari Tzedek, we get to Shari Tzedek, we go up to fifth floor cardiac. Now I knew this was not going to be easy. There, there's gatekeepers there, there's no way they're going to let me in easily to see this man. I said to Khan, listen, you stand back, I'll take care of this. Yeah. <laughs> so I walk up to the cardiology desk and I say to the secretary, excuse me, um, I need to speak to Dr. Simone immediately. <laughs> so the secretary looks up at me and she says, this is like quarter to 12 at night. Do you have an appointment? <laughs> So I said, no, I don't have an appointment, but I need to see him immediately. So she says to me, 
is this an emergency? <laughs> so I couldn't say yes, because I knew if I said yes, it's an emergency, she would send me downstairs to the emergency room. So I said, it's not an emergency, but I, I need to see him immediately. So she says, it's not a problem. She says, if you'll come back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, we'll get an appointment for you sometime within, within the next 90 days. So I said, that's not I've got to see him now. She says, I'm sorry. He's doing rounds. He can't see you. So I fought with this lady for about five minutes. And she was a, an expert gatekeeper. And there was no way I was getting through. Fine. Okay. That was it. We were not going to get to see Dancy. This plan didn't work. So I was walking away from the desk. And, and then I thought, wait a minute. And I went back and I had one last idea. I said to her, I'm leaving. I'm going to leave right now. However, could you just page him and tell him that Jules Garden's brother-in-law is here to see him? So she says to me, he's not going to see you. So I said, I understand. Could you just page him, however, and tell him that Jules Garden's brother-in-law is here to see him and then I'll leave. So I realized she can't refuse the page because that's her job. If she refused to page him, she could be fired. So she gets up from the, from the table, harumph, yeah? She walks to the back. Two minutes later, this guy runs out from behind in a white coat, looking around. So I realized this must be the man. He was never doing rounds. He was in the back all along. So I walk up to him and I say, are you Dan Sivoni? She so looks at me and he says, yeah, who are you? So I said, I'm Jules Garden's brother-in-law. So he says, well, where's Jules? <laughs> She had botched the message. She said that Jules was here. <laughs> so I said, Jules isn't here. He sent me to see you. So this man is a brilliant diagnostician. And the entire physical exam lasted about a quarter of a second. He went like this. <laughs> and instantaneously, he could see I was not about to drop from a heart attack. So he says to me, he says, what are you doing here? <laughs> So I said, it's not me. I said, it's my baby. And I gestured behind me, and standing 15 feet behind me is Hannah clutching the child. <laughs> yes? And the guy takes one look at Hannah's face and says, your baby? Your baby has a heart problem? Orderly, give that baby an echocardiogram. This guy in a white coat goes running across the room, grabs the baby like a football, and takes off down the hall. <laughs> Dan Sivoni goes running back to his room. My wife says, where do we go? I said, follow the kid! Yeah, so we're running down the hall, going after the kid. The whole time we're running down the hall, Hannah's saying, this is a bad idea, this is a bad idea. We get to the, to the room, and by the time we get to the room, the secretary had already called. She said, there's an emergency echocardiogram. All echocardiographers to, you know, whatever the room number was. We couldn't, we couldn't get into the room. We were standing out in the hall, kind of saying like, brilliant, Labe, you know, good job, yeah? She says, how are we going to get a well baby checkup? I said, listen, don't worry. When they're done in there, then they have to show this test they're doing to Dan Sivoni and we'll explain, it was a mistake. We just wanted a well baby checkup and then he'll check the baby and tell us what's going on. So meanwhile, they've got my baby on the table. They've got jelly on his belly. They're going, <laughs> his heart is on big screen. Thunk, 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 yeah? And Khan and I are standing outside. Now, because Dan Sivoni echoed this order of his echocardiogram, so they couldn't stop until they found something. So 10 minutes goes by, and they're still looking. 20 minutes goes by, they're still looking. 30 minutes goes by, they're still looking. 40 minutes goes by. Khan and I are standing outside this room for 45 minutes while they're trying to find a heart problem with a healthy baby. After 45 minutes, they finally flip off the machine, 
and all the doctors file out. The guy says, everyone take off. Everyone goes. There's the one chief echocardiographer who's left in there, and he says, come on in. And my wife and I go in, and we sit down, and the guy rolls his chair over, closes the door, and he says to me, Mr. Kellerman, your baby should be dead. He has dozens of holes in his heart. He has a blocked aorta, and the only reason he's alive is as a result of a fluke that the ductus arteriosus, an artery which is normally only open in utero, and normally when the baby takes his first breath, that closes this artery. As a fluke, for some reason, this artery didn't close. So it looked like there was normal circulation going through the kid's body, but the truth is, his aorta was blocked, completely gone. And the doctor explained to me that the ductus arteriosus will not remain open. It's oxygen sensitive. Every time the child inhales, there's a risk that with that breath, the ductus arteriosus will, will close. He said, eventually it's going to, and then your baby's going to die. Fine, what do we do? Well, like, you know, like, we need surgery, we need, like, what do we do? So he was very upset with me because I wasn't listening to him. He had told me what was going to happen, and I wasn't listening. And he, he, he started again in a, in a very frustrated tone. Mr. Kellerman, your baby needs emergency surgery now. So I interrupted him and I said, fine, give me the paper, I'll sign. He said, no, 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 Mr. Kellerman, you don't understand. He says, these babies, they never make it. He says, normally what happens is when the baby's born, the baby inhales to take his first breath, that closes the ductar, ductus arteriosus, and it looks like a stillborn because the baby never even cries. The minute that that artery closes, all blood is cut off to the brain and the, and the baby's dead. So again, very frustrated, he says, Mr. Kellerman, I wasn't listening to him. He said, Mr. Kellerman, there's no doctor in this country who has any experience doing that surgery. These kids never make it. He says, there's no one who's going to touch your kid. So I said, fine, you know, so we'll, we'll, transport, the, like, we'll, we'll transport the kid to Europe or you know, America, whatever it takes. He said, Mr. Kellerman, even if you want to transport your kid, you can't. He says, it could be. He says, there's three doctors in the world who would probably be willing to do an experimental surgery and see if they could save the kid's life. He says, there was one in Boston. There was a guy at Columbia Presbyterian in New York, Quagabere. And he says, the best guy is in L.A. His name is Lax. But he says, you aren't going any place because right now, this child, in order to survive another few minutes, has to go into the special incubator with all sorts of pumps and tubes. And once that kid goes into that incubator, he can't come out. And that incubator is not mobile. We don't have a mobile incubator. So I said, well, let's get one from another hospital. Mr. Kellerman, the kind of incubator you need, there isn't a mobile incubator like that in this country. I said, so we'll get one from another country. He says, even if you get an incubator from another country, it won't help because he says, these kids are oxygen sensitive. So if you take that kid and you put him in a normal incubator that's ventilated and you take that incubator and you put it on a plane where the oxygen level is very dense, the high density oxygen on the plane will seep into the incubator. The kid will get one whiff of that stuff and boom, it'll kill him. The only way you could put that kid on a plane would be if you sealed the incubator but if you seal the incubator, then there's no oxygen going in, which means that you'd have to have a separate oxygen tank pumping in low-density oxygen into the incubator. And Mr. Kellerman, there's an FAA rule. There's a Federal Aviation Administration rule that you cannot fly over U.S. airspace with an ta oxygen tank on board. Because God forbid, if the plane loses air pressure, the oxygen tank will explode like a hand grenade, which actually happened a couple of years ago. And therefore, Mr. Kellerman, you are not going anyplace. Okay, the reality began to sink in, and I realized what was happening. And I said to him, fine, what do we do? And he said, right now we're going to take your baby to the pediatric ICU. We're going to put your baby into the into this special incubator. If you want, you can wait here. If you want, you can come with us. So my wife and I are both the let's help type. And I said, I would like to come. So we carried the baby to the pediatric ICU. When we got there, he explained to me that 
little newborn arms and legs. The arteries are so small that you can't put an IV in, you'll blow out the artery. So I held my little boy's head for over an hour while one by one they put the tubes in through his head. And when he was completely wired, they taped everything down top of his head. They took this little baby, they put him down the incubator, they sealed the incubator, and that was it. There was a little window on the top of the incubator where you could see a shadow of a child. And uh, that was it. The head of the pediatric ICU then came up to me and said, you know, I think you should call a rabbi. And the truth is, I had never been through the death of someone this close to me before, and I had no idea how I was going to react. And I'm not stupid. I said, you're right. You know, I, I think I probably should call a rabbi. And he handed me a phone number and he said, call this guy. So I said, fine. You know, is there a phone I can use? He said, yes, right outside the pediatric, pediatric ICU. In those days, the pediatric ICU was this big room. And the way out was there was a steel door with a glass window. And just outside the steel door with the glass window, there was a hallway. In that hallway, he said, there's a phone. So Khan and I walked out. We walked into that hallway. <coughs> I picked up the phone. I looked at the phone number he had given me. The guy had given me the phone number of a rabbi in B'nai Brak. Okay, Now, we were in Jerusalem. Why didn't he give me the phone number of a rabbi in Jerusalem? I figured, you know, like maybe he doesn't realize there's rabbis in Jerusalem. Yeah, Fine, whatever. But this is the number he gave me. Maybe this guy's an expert in counseling people who have very serious situations like this. Fine, I, I call. Okay, It's now like 1230 at night. And when I call, a secretary answers the phone. Hello, can I help you? So I said, yeah, I need to speak to a Rabbi Fearer. So the secretary says, just a minute, please. She puts me on hold, right? Right. Mordechai Ben David is rocking out on the music box, right? When I'm on hold, yeah, right? Finally, the guy comes on the phone, right? Hello, this is Rabbi Fear. Can I help you? So I said, yeah, I have a really sick kid. So Rabbi Fear said, where are you calling from? So I said, Shari Tzedek. So he says, what's wrong with your child? So I said, they told me that he has dozens of holes in his heart. So Rabbi Fear says back, hmm, multiple VSDs. Anything else? So I said, uh, yeah, they told me he's got a blocked aorta. So he says, okay, multiple VSDs in a co-arc. Anything else? So I said, no, Rabbi, uh, that's all. So there's this pause, and he says, multiple VSDs in a co-arc. Your baby needs emergency surgery. I said, yeah, they mentioned that to me here. He says, but there's no doctor in this country who's going to do it. There's a guy in Boston, there's a guy in New York. The best guy's in L.A., but I don't think they're going to make it that far. I said, yeah, they mentioned that to me here. He says, but you're going to have a problem. I said, what's that? He says, that baby to get flown out of this country is going to need a mobile incubator, and there is no mobile incubator in this country. I said, yeah, they mentioned that to me as well. So he said, there is a mobile incubator in France. He says, I think I can get it to Paris by tonight. If I can get it to Paris by tonight, I can have it into Tel Aviv by tomorrow night. We'll shoot it straight from Tel Aviv over to B'nai Brak. B'nai Brak to Jerusalem. You'll be all set. You can fly out tomorrow night. I said, oh. <laughs> he says, but you're still going to have a problem. I said, what's that, Rabbi? He says, this baby can't fly without oxygen, and it's illegal to fly over U.S. airspace with an oxygen tank. I said, yeah, they mentioned that to me as well. He says, I can't help you with the oxygen, but he said, I'll get back to you about the incubator. Dial tone. I put down the phone, Khan said, what happened? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm trying to explain to Khan this whole conversation, and we're walking back into the, into the pediatric ICU, and as we get into the pediatric ICU, the head doctor comes up to me and he says, what did Rabbi Fear say? So I explained, Rabbi Fear said, he's going to get us an incubator to France, I mean, from France to Paris by tonight, Tel Aviv by tomorrow night, we should fly out on, on the flight tomorrow night. So this doctor says to me, Mr. Kellerman, I've seen people try this before. Trust me, you don't want to do this. He says this is going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars, and these kids never live. Your kid is no way going to make it to a surgery in America, and you're going to waste tens of thousands of dollars. Don't do this, Mr. Kellerman. Do you want to do this? And I remember I looked at Hannah, and I remember Hannah looking at me, and I remember we both thought the same thing. I thought, and she thought, this is my son. And I looked at the doctor, and I said, yes, this is what we'd like to do. And the doctor said, fine. 
it's your money. You're wasting your money, but it's your money. He says, you know what? You probably can't fly out tomorrow night. He says, given the amount of electronic equipment you're going to be flying with, you're going to need the whole back row of 747. He says, why don't you call and find out if the back row of 747 is available tomorrow night. So now it's like one in the morning, and I get on the phone. I call my travel agent, right? Saucy, the angel, Abramowitz. <laughs> So I wake her up in the middle of the night. She says, Leib, why are you calling me so late? So I said, Saucy, my son is sick. Your son is sick. What's wrong? So I explained the whole situation that he has to fly for a surgery to America and we can't fly with oxygen. We can't fly without it. It's a terrible situation. The best guy's in New York. The second best guy's in New York. The best guy's in LA. We don't know what to do. I need the whole back row of a 747. Can you help me out? Saucy says, Leib, stand by. I'll call you back. About 45 minutes later, Saucy calls back and she says, Leib, I got you two back rows of 747s. I said, what do you mean two back rows of 747s? She said, let's be honest. You and I both know that you cannot fly this kid without an auction tank, and you're not allowed to fly over US airspace with an auction tank on board. She says, there is no airline that's gonna be willing to take you, stop. No one is just gonna take you. She said, I contacted El All, and they offered the following arrangement. They said, if you bribe them, they might think about it. <laughs> I said, Saucy, how much do they want? <laughs> so she says, like this. When you land in New York, if you, fly, if you fly straight to New York, when you land in New York, she said, on the spot, when they find the auction tank, they're going to arrest somebody. <laughs> she says, what Ella wants is, A, that you should claim that you smuggled the auction on board and they didn't see it. Then they'll arrest you. <laughs> She says, beyond that, she says, there's going to be a fine to pay, a $50,000 fine, and you have to promise that you'll pay the fine. Now, just a little bit of background. At this point, I had been learning in Kolel for about 10 years. <laughs> I didn't have a bank account. <laughs> so I said to Saucy, 50000 no problem. <laughs> she says, but you're still going to have a problem. I said, what's that? She said, you said the second best doctor was in New York. And the best doctor was in LA. The problem is, if you take tomorrow night's one o'clock a.m. flight, which is the one that Rabbi Fear had preferred, the one o'clock a.m. flight, El All goes Tel Aviv, New York, you're gonna get arrested in New York. The kid's never gonna make it to LA where the best doctor is, because they're not gonna let you take off again. So she said, what I did was, just in case you wanted, I booked you on a second flight. There's a flight that leaves 12 hours later it goes Tel Aviv direct, it's a Swiss air flight, Tel Aviv direct to LA. So she says it's a great flight because they won't arrest you till you get to LA. <laughs> so she says, what would you prefer? Do you want to leave 12 hours earlier and risk getting arrested in New York and not making it to LA? Or 12 hours later and get to the very best doctor, the guy in LA? So I'm thinking like, how could I possibly know? The doctors told me the kid could drop any minute. You know, that means time is of the essence. On the other hand, if I get to the best doctor, that might make a big difference. So I said to Saucy, can you hold both reservations? She said, Leib, don't worry about it. You've got two reservations. Just let me know when you've decided which flight you want. Very good. Thank you very much. I went back. I told the doctor that we, in fact, did get reservations. And I asked him, do you need me for anything else tonight? And he said, no. He specified that they had certain requirements. In order to have him released from Shari Tzedek, Shari Tzedek required that we fly with a surgeon. In case, God forbid, there was an emergency on the plane, that there should be a surgeon who can take care of the emergency on the plane. So I said, and you won't release the kid to me unless I find such a person. 
He says, if you're interested, we'll start to dig around. We'll see if we can come up with such a person. I said, please do. Thank you very much. Good night. And my wife and I then walked out of the pediatric ICU. On the way out, I said, could I use the phone? I'd like to make one more phone call. And he said, yeah, go ahead. No problem. So on the way out, I made one last phone call. We were both concerned that my parents might call, see that we weren't home, and might think something's wrong. And I didn't want them to panic. So in order to sort of like camouflage the situation, cover things up, I made one last phone call from that door just outside the pediatric ICU. I called my mom on the phone. I got her on the phone. It's now, you know, like 1.30 in the morning. And she says, Leigh, why are you calling so late? I said, oh, mom, it's nothing. I was just getting a well baby checkup. So she says, well baby checkup at 1.30 in the morning. Very interesting. So she says, what, what's going on? So I said, oh, it's nothing serious. I said, it's, it's really, you know, there's nothing here. But I said, I do want to fly to the United States for a second opinion. <laughs> so I said, we might not be around for a couple of days, yeah? So my wife says, yeah, no problem, nothing serious. Just uh, flying into the United States for a second opinion. So um, with that, you know, she said, you know, when you find out what's going on, just let me know. So I said, no problem, mom. So... With that, Han and I packed up everything. We headed back home. It was when we got home around 2.30. And my wife, we just had a serious section. We didn't know why she'd recovered so quickly. She was exhausted. And at 2.30, Hannah laid down. And instantaneously, she was out. I couldn't sleep. And I was walking back and forth in the hallway when the phone rang. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I ran for the phone. And I picked up the phone. And when I put the phone to my ear, I hear a woman screaming, Give me Kellerman! Give me Kellerman! I said, this is Kellerman. What's wrong? She says, I hear you need a passport! I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She says, don't you have a sick kid? I said, yeah. Aren't you going to try to fly him out of the country tomorrow night? I said, yeah. She says, you can't fly out of this country without a passport. I said, you're right. Who are you? <laughs> so she says, I am so-and-so, I cannot say her name for reasons you'll understand momentarily. I'm the head of the Department of the Interior here in Israel, the head of the Misrata Panim. She says, I'm the one who issues the passports. She says, tomorrow morning my office opens at 8.30 in the morning. But she says, when my office opens at 8.30, I have to go to Tel Aviv. So she said, if you'll come at 7.30 in the morning, we should be able to complete it in an hour, come an hour early, I will issue the passport to you. You'll have it by 8.30, and you'll be able to fly your kid out of this country tomorrow night. But she says, don't be late and bring all your papers because she says, if I don't issue this passport, then it takes three days. So I said, thank you so much. We'll be there at 7.30. Who told you about this? The woman furious on the phone says, who told me about this? Senator Moynihan, that's who told me about this. <laughs> I didn't ask. I just said, thank you, we'll be there. Click. Fine. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I lay down, I went to sleep. My plan was to get up early, go to the hospital, check on the baby. When we were done checking on the baby, I figured we'll head off to the Misrata Panim, the Department of Interior, get the passport, and move from there. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, I fell asleep. Khan had slept from 2.30. 5.30, I got up, and I woke Khan up. She had slept all of three hours. I had slept two and a half. And we got in the taxi, and we shot back over to the hospital. When... We got to the hospital, we went up to the pediatric ICU. As we were walking into the pediatric ICU, we were walking down that hallway. The doctor who had checked us in the night before saw that it was mom and dad coming, 
and he ran out to stop us in the hallway. So when he saw him coming, we, we froze. He ran up to us and he opened the door, he came out and he said, Mr. Kelvin, you're a very lucky man. I said, why am I lucky? He said, last night, when we checked your baby in, we did an echocardiogram. He said, after you left last night, we replayed the echocardiogram here in the pediatric ICU. And we saw on the echo that with every beat of your child's heart, the ductus arteriosus was closing. I said, so what's going on with my kid? So he says, since we started your kid on the prostaglandin IVs, the ductus arteriosus has frozen, half open, half closed. Your child is in critical condition, but at the moment he's stable. I said, can I see my child? He said, come on in. So we went in and we walked over to this big box and we really couldn't see anything. We could see the shadow of a baby in the bottom of the box, but we, beyond that, we really couldn't see anything. We sat there until 7.10 a.m. And at 7.10 a.m., I got up, I walked around the pediatric ICU, I said to them, do you need me for anything? And they all said, no, we don't need you for anything. Fine, I said, we're gonna go. My wife and I at 710 walked downstairs. It's about a 20 minute taxi ride over to the department interior. We went downstairs, we caught a taxi right away. And we shot over to the Misrata Panim, the department interior. We got out, when we got out, the, the doors of the, of the Misrata Panim were chain closed, but there was a guard sitting out in front. And as I walked up to him, he said to me, Kellerman? I said, yeah. He says, she's waiting for you. Third floor, first door on the left. He opens the chains. He lets us into the building. We walk in, take the elevator up to the third floor. First door on the left. I knock. This very nervous sounding voice says, come in, come in. So I open the door and this lady is sitting at her desk. Yeah. There's, you know, whirls of smoke around her head. She's got the cigarette going, <laughs> you know, nervous type, fresh pile of ashes in front of her. She's like, quickly, come in, come in. We have no time. So 7.30 in the morning, my wife and I walk in and we start working with her. Now, I didn't know what I was going to need. So I brought my whole life in a file, yeah? You know, like I had my high school graduation certificate, you know? I didn't know what they were going to want. So she says, give me this paper, give me this paper. So we're handing over the papers, fill out this form, fill out this form. My wife is working on one form, I'm working on another, we're signing papers, right? At 10 minutes to 8 in the morning, she says to me, quickly, give me the certificate of live birth from the hospital. So I go into the file, I start looking for the certificate of live birth, and I don't see it on my first run through. I go back to the beginning of the file again. I'm going through more slowly this time, and this woman is getting more and more nervous. Give me a certificate of live birth! Give me a certificate of live birth! We have to get on with this! So my eyes are blurring. I can't see straight. I only slept two and a half hours. I said to Hannah, Hannah, please, I can't see it. Could you look? So I hand the file over to Hannah. Hannah's going through the file. This lady is screaming at the top of her lungs. Hannah whispers to me, Labe. It's not here. I said, Hannah, it's got to be there. She says, Lave, it's not here. The lady hears this and she's like, give me the certificate! So I felt there was no other option. So I just took the file. I leaned over the woman's desk and I just dumped the entire file out onto her desk. <laughs> yeah. And she went, yeah. yeah. So she's screaming at the top of her lungs and Hannah and I are going through all the papers on her desk looking for the certificate. And she's screaming, and I'm thinking like, oh my God, what do I do with it? And then I, I put down my head, and I just started to think. And I remembered that the previous night, when we checked the baby into the pediatric ICU, and I said to her, if you'll call the pediatric ICU, they made me turn that over. It's in my kid's file. It's sure I said it. Call them. They've got it. So the woman leans back in her chair, and she says, Mr. Kellum, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I said, what are you talking about? Call them up. They'll tell you they've got the certificate of live birth. 
She says, Ms. Kemmer, I told you to bring all the papers. I have to see it. I'm sorry. I said, it's not a problem. If you call them, they'll fax it to you. She says, Mr. Kellum, I'm sorry, I have to see the original. So I leaned over and I said to her, you understand that if you fail to issue this passport, you're killing my kid. So she looks up at me, she says, Mr. Kellerman, I told you to bring all your papers. Don't be dramatic. <laughs> so, you know, like it was absolutely useless talking to her. We were getting no place. And, you know, it's, it's now eight minutes to eight in the morning. She's leaving at 8.30. I said, Hannah, let's go. Hannah says, where are you going? I said, we're going to go and we're going to get that certificate. So Khan and I start to walk towards the door and the lady says, I'm leaving at 8.30. I said, fine, we've got, you know, 16 minutes to get there, 20 minutes to get back, maybe we'll make it. She says, I'm walking out the door. I said, fine, very good. Khan and I run out her door. We run down the hall. We get to the end of the hall. I press the elevator button. Khan says, there's no time for elevators. And I realized she was right. So Khan led the way. We ran back to the stairwell. When we hit the stairwell, I started running down the stairs. Khan was running after me. We're barreling down these stairs. Hannah, who just had a serine section, we didn't know why she recovered so quickly. I remember as she was coming around on the bottom flight, the, the last landing, as we were coming around, I was at the bottom of the stairs. She was just coming off the stairs. And I remember seeing her face as she was coming down towards me and she was yelling at me, if there isn't a taxi outside, we're finished. I said, I know. We ran downstairs. We ran out the doors. We ran out the door. A taxi pulled up. A guy hopped out of the taxi. Hannah and I jumped in. I said to the guy, quick, Shari Tzedek. So the guy looks over his shoulder and he sees my wife who looks like she's about to drop a baby. He slams on the gas, yeah? <laughs> Both sides of the road, all the way down to Shari Tzedek. He comes to a screeching halt in front of the emergency entrance in Shari Tzedek and he says, quick, get out. So I said to Hannah, you stay here, I'm going in. <laughs> And I just hopped out of the taxi and I took off running down right towards the emergency entrance. That taxi driver got out of his taxi and he was screaming at me, No, your wife! Your wife! <laughs> I went in through the emergency entrance, past emergency, into the center of Shari Tzedek, hit the stairwells, no time for elevators. I ran up five flights of stairs. When I got to the top of these stairs, I was exhausted, I was, I was winded, right? I was running through the halls of Shari Tzedek. I saw the hallway, I went running down the hallway, burst into the metal door, ran up to the first doctor I saw and said, quick, I've got to have the brisket for my baby. So the guy puts his arm around me and says, shh, come with me. I'm like, wait, shh. <laughs> and he starts walking me out. He walks me to the point where I'm standing just outside the entrance to the emergency room. And he's the, 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 the pediatric ICU, and he's standing just inside the entrance to the pediatric ICU. And he says to me, Mr. Kelm, do you see these doctors over here? And I said, like, you know, what doctors? Yeah, what do you want? And I see there's a bunch of guys walking around inside the pediatric ICU. He says to me, these doctors are visiting doctors from abroad. He said, they should be done in about an hour, and we'll be with you then. He takes the pediatric ICU door, closes it, and locks it. Now... I did what I think any reasonable human being would have done under the circumstances. But the door was steel, so I couldn't kick it in. Yeah. I'm bang, 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 as loud as I can. I'm screaming, I'm banging. And they just think I'm a lunatic, which I was at that point. And they ignored me. And I'll never forget, I leaned up against the pediatric ICU door, and that was it. I couldn't get in to get the certificate of light birth, so I couldn't fly my kid out that night, which means no surgery, which unfortunately meant something very tragic.
And the tears were rolling down my face. And I just kept saying, like, God, please save my son. God, please save my son. There was an old Yerushalmi spongy lady who was mopping up in the hallway. And this old Jewish lady saw me crying. And she walked over to me with her spongy stick. And she said to me, don't worry, it'll be okay. This was the wrong thing to say to me. <laughs> I said, it's not going to be okay. I've got to get my birth certificate out of baby to fly to America on emergency surgery. She listens to the whole story. And this elderly woman says, Zenora. She says, this is terrible. And she throws down her spongy stick. And this elderly woman then takes off running down the hall. <laughs> So I'm watching her take off, right? Within five minutes, she had made it 15 yards away. And she runs up to the information desk. At the information desk, there was a young lady sitting there. And this old Yerushalmi, standing in front of the information desk, started telling over the story to this young lady at the information desk. Now, I couldn't see the old Yerushalmi's face because she was facing the, the information woman. I could only see the old Yerushalmi's back. And her back looked like this. <laughs> so I saw the lady at the information desk hop up and then she took off running so I looked to see where she went she just disappeared around the corner so I'm looking around to try to figure out what happened and I see the back door of the pediatric ICU opens and this information lady runs in and I see her going from file to file to file going through the files looking she grabs a paper out of one of the files goes running out the back door again. I'm looking around to see where she's going to pop up. She pops up at the end of the hall. I see she hands the paper to the old Yerushalmi. The old Yerushalmi turns around and she starts running back towards me. <laughs> so I take off barreling down the hall. I run up to this woman. She hands the paper to me and she says, Mazel tov. <laughs> I grab the paper. I go running down five flights of stairs. Right? I'm on the, on the bottom floor. I run out through emergency. I'm running towards the taxi. At this point, as I'm running towards the taxi, I see the taxi driver has opened up the back door. He's trying to pull my wife out of the taxi. And he's saying, baby, hospital! Yeah. <laughs> so I just, just ran at the taxi. And as I approached the taxi, I just opened the passenger door and I hopped in and closed the door. So the man heard that somebody had hopped into his taxi. And he walked over to the front of the taxi and he looked across his seat to see who it was. And he saw me sitting there. And I said, quick, the Department of the Interior. So he looks over at me and he says, <laughs> So I said, quick, the Department of the Interior. So the guy gets in his taxi, both sides of the road, all the way back to the Department of the Interior. He just didn't want a baby in his back seat. Yeah? He comes to a screeching halt in front of the Department of the Interior and I'll never forget his face. This man was white. He turned around and he said, Don't pay, just get out! <laughs> Khan and I hopped out. We ran in, right? No time for elevators. We ran up three flights of stairs. Khan who just had a staring section. We didn't know why she healed so quickly. We got to the third floor. We were running towards this woman's door. As we were approaching her door, the door opened. The lady walks out with her purse. So I look at my watch, it's 8.28. And I said, I've got the certificate. So she looks at her watch and says, Mr. Kellum, I told you I have to leave at 8.30.
I said, fine, but we got the certificate. She says, I can't finish it up in two minutes. I'm very sorry. And she starts to walk, and I jumped in front of her. And I said, please, if you leave me, my baby's going to die. Please. She was a Jewish woman, and she had some Rahmanas. And she said, okay, quickly, get your papers. We ran into her office. We gathered up all the papers off the desk, came running out. She said, come with me. She took us down the hall. Give your papers to this woman. She dumped all the papers on her secretary's <coughs> desk. Her secretary finished filling out all the papers and gave us the form that would allow us to go down to the American consulate and get the, 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 the American passport. We got to the American consulate. Eventually, we got in. I knew where the passport desk was because I had been there once before doing this. We ran to the passport desk. And the, so the, they had a tiny American staff there, and all the other people working in the embassy and the consulate were Arabs. So I ran up to the, to, the, to the passport desk, and there behind the passport desk was Muhammad. So I said to Muhammad, I said, listen, I have a medical emergency, and I'm an American citizen, my wife's an American citizen, we've got to fly our kid out of America, we need uh, uh, to get an American passport for this kid now. So Muhammad says to me, Mr. Kellerman, it's not the problem. He says, fill out this form, fill out this form, we, we, be, we are on it right away, don't worry. So I said, great. So I filled out the form. Right, my wife and I signed, everything's ready to go. He's Mr. Kellerman, you're all set. He says, you go to this next aisle, you pay, you come back, I give you a passport. Right? I get the receipt, I come back to Muhammad. When I get back to Muhammad, I hand him the receipt. He says, Mr. Kellerman, you're all set. He says, give me picture, have a seat, in 15 minutes I give you a passport. I said, I, I, I don't have a picture because the baby's in a box. He says, oh, Mr. Kellerman, no picture or no passport. So I said, no, no, Muhammad, you understand, this is a medical emergency. I'm an American citizen, my wife is an American citizen, we just want to fly our kid, we need a passport to fly our kid back into America. <clears throat> so by now he's got this thing, it looks like the New York telephone directory open, and he's pointing and he says, Mr. Kellerman, it says here, and he's showing me the regulation, it says here, no picture, no passport, I'm very sorry. So I argued with him for about 15 minutes. So that was it. And we were not going to get the passport. Now, I didn't learn very much in school. However, I remember one social studies class when I was in fourth grade where they taught us this really neat law that I thought was so cool I never forgot it. There happens to be an American law that if an American citizen is in a foreign country and you make it to an American consulate or embassy, you can demand that the American consular general come to you. So I took out my passport. I remember this from fourth grade. I took out my passport. I put it up against the glass and I said, Muhammad, I want to see the American Consul General now. So Muhammad says, oh, Mr. Kellerman, I'm sorry, he's in Tel Aviv. So I said, Muhammad, I know the law. I want to see him here now. Muhammad says, oh, don't do that. <laughs> I said, now. So Muhammad has no choice. He goes to the back of the office. He picks up uh, a microphone. He speaks into the microphone. I see him talking back and forth on a radio. He puts the microphone down. He comes back to the window. He says, Mr. Kellerman, I'm so sorry. He's not in Tel Aviv. I said, I don't care where he is. I want to see him. He says, coincidence. He happens to be on the way here. Be here in 15 minutes. Have a seat. So we sat down. We waited 15 minutes. 15 minutes later, tall Caucasian man, hair combed to the side, clean shaven, walks up to the window and says, Mr. Kellerman, Mr. Kellerman, come here, please, Mr. Kellerman. So I over the window. This is the American Consul General. He says, Mr. Kellerman, and he's got the book open and he's pointing. Mr. Kellerman, as Muhammad was telling you, 
we cannot assist you because we can't issue a passport unless you have a picture. We would like to help you out, but we're just bound by American law. We're very sorry. So I said, you know, let's start over again. It's a medical emergency. I go through the whole story with him. He says, Mr. Kellerman, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do for you. It was like trying to reason with an ice cube. So that was it. We couldn't get the passport, so we couldn't fly the kid out. As I was backing away from the window, it had been a very long couple of days. And I'm embarrassed to say I lost it emotionally. And as I was walking away from the window, I said to him, I cannot believe that I'm an American citizen, my wife's an American citizen, all we want to do is fly our kid out of this country and you won't let us. And, except I didn't say it in such a nice tone. <laughs> and he said to me, you didn't say that. Okay, now I had had it. I said, what didn't I say? <laughs> so he says, you didn't say you wanted to fly your kid out of this country. I said, what are you talking about? He says, you said you wanted a passport. I said, what are you talking about? He says, just a minute. He opens up the book, he starts flipping through the book, and he says, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I said, what's uh-huh? He says to me, there's a law here that says that we can write the Israelis a letter telling them that your child is a visiting American diplomat. <laughs> he says, that'll get your kid out of this country. He says, the next law down says that we can write the Americans a letter saying that your child is a visiting Israeli diplomat. That'll get him into America. I said, we'll take two, please, yes? On the spot, the man drafts the letters. The American Consul General signed the letters. He handed the letters over to us. We grabbed the letters. We ran back to Sharit Sedek. We got back to Sharit Sedek. We went in the front entrance. As soon as I was in Sharit Sedek, I had a sick feeling. I mean, more than a sick feeling. I had clarity, and I knew, I knew what had happened. And I just couldn't bear to tell Hannah. So I didn't lie, but I delayed. And I said to Hannah, listen, I haven't davened yet. I, I haven't prayed. And would you mind? I had my Tolson's filling right there. I said, would you mind if before we go upstairs, if I davened? And the truth is, I was just buying time because I, I didn't know how I was going to help her when she discovered what was going on. So Shana innocently says, yeah, no problem. Go ahead and go ahead and daven. I'm going to go sit and have a seat. And she went on the other side of the lobby at Shart Sedek. She had a seat. And I put on my Tolson's filling. I stepped up to a wall at Shart Sedek. So I stepped up to the wall that morning in Shart Sedek. And it was the most unusual tefillah I had ever had. And it's the most unusual tefillah I've, I've had since then. What happened was I stepped up to the wall and I just started praying, God, save my kid, please. And it was the first time ever in my life that I had absolute and total clarity. I mean, I really knew that there was no one listening. It was the first time I realized I had been completely abandoned. If there was a God, he wasn't there listening to my prayers. I was totally alone. It was a palpable feeling of complete abandonment. I've never had the experience before or since. And I just kept standing there with my eyes closed and the tears pouring down my face. Please, God, not now. Please, please. Don't abandon me now. Please. And it was just a deadline. After a half hour, I stepped out of Shimona Esrei. I walked back, took off my Tolson fillin. I realized exactly what had happened. I walked over to Hannah. I remember she was sitting in the lobby. I walked around her chair to say hello to her. And she had melted into the chair. She was bawling. She was crying. I said, what's wrong? She said, I know what's going on upstairs. I said, I know too. I sat down next to her. She was panicked, like, God, I can't believe what just happened. And I said, I know, I think we should go upstairs. And first, she didn't want to go upstairs, and I didn't want to go upstairs. Eventually, we both got our courage together. We walked into the elevator. We went up to the fifth floor. We walked towards the pediatric ICU. When we got into the hallway outside the pediatric ICU, we saw all the doctors in the, in the pediatric ICU all crowded in a circle around something. There was some emergency taking place in there, and we both knew what it was. So I walked forward. I opened the door. 
When I opened the door, one of the doctors who was in the circle looked over to see who was coming in. He saw it was the father. So this is a very sensitive man. He moved out of the way so that I could get into the circle. And I walked over to the circle, and I looked over to see what everyone was looking at. And sitting in the center of the circle was a woman, the assistant head of the pediatric ICU. And she was sitting on a chair, and on her lap was a telephone. And she was hunched over, screaming into the phone. No, 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 I know the three lines. No, I'm clearing the line. You've got it. It's clear. You've got it. The auctions go. Okay, fine. Okay. She hangs up the phone. She looks up and she sees my face. It was as if she just saw the Red Sea split. And I said, and it's obviously to do with my kid. I said, what's going on? She says, that was the FAA representative who's responsible for oxygen. I said, what did they say? So she says, she said that your mother was on one line. Your sister was on the other line. She said, you're on the third line. If you'll get off the line, I'll order the oxygen. So she says, you've got the oxygen. You've got clearance. You can fly straight to New York. You can do a transfer from New York to LA. You can leave tonight at one o'clock. It's all a go. She said, you better call and make sure, though, that the, the equipment you're flying with is compatible electronically with the plane you're flying with. So I called Rabbi Fear on the phone, and Rabbi Fear said, yeah, we got the thing. It's, it's on its way to France. We'll have it to you by, by well, it's on its way to Paris. We'll have it to you by tonight at one o'clock. Don't worry. So again, he said, we're going to shoot it over to B'nai Brock and then shoot it up to you. And I was thinking, B'nai Brock, why are they going from Ben-Gurion to B'nai Brock and then to Jerusalem? Just go straight from Ben-Gurion to Jerusalem. But anyway, he said, I'll have it. I said, what is the currency the thing runs on? He says, it runs on 250 hertz. I said, great, thank you very much. I called up El Al. I got the chief engineer at El Al. So the chief engineer at El Al says, you know, what can I do for you? I said, I'm the guy flying with the kid tonight. He says, oh, I'm glad you called. What's the currency of the unit you're flying with? I said, it's 250 hertz. Pause. Uh, Mr. Kellerman, our planes don't run on 250 hertz. We can't handle that. I said, there's nothing you can do for me? He says, long shot. Is that incubator from France? I said, yeah. He says, we flew that incubator once before. He said, I remember we, have to, we had to build a whole conversion board to make it from 250 hertz to the currency of our planes. He says, let me call you back. Half an hour later, the guy calls back, chief engineer from El Al. He says, you know, funny coincidence, but I went down to the hangar and I found leaning up against a wall in the hangar, the old conversion board we built. He says, you're set, you can take the, you can take the unit on our plane. But he says, you better call. We were going to do a transfer in New York from LL to TWA and then go to TWA from New York to LA to get to the best doctor. He says, you better call TWA and make sure they can handle the, the board. So I call TWA. I ask for the chief engineer. I get the chief engineer in Tel Aviv. The chief engineer from TWA gets on the phone with me and he says, Mr. Kelman, I have bad news for you. Our planes don't run on 250 hertz. And he says, even worse, our planes don't run on the same currency as the LL plane. So we can't even use the LL conversion board. I said, what do we do? He says, listen. Before you arrive in New York, we've got about 14 hours. He said, do this. Call back El Al. Ask them if they'll fax the blueprints of the unit that they built to our New York office. And we'll send an engineering team in New York to go work on trying to construct one that'll work on the TWA plane. I said, thank you. They called El Al. They faxed the blueprints over to New York. We had to get clearance from Columbia Presbyterian and UCLA to bring the kid in because they had to assemble a special team to do the surgery. So Columbia Presbyterian said, we'll take the kid, but we require that at landing, right before landing, you have to inject him with a certain drug which will allow us to do the surgery immediately. So we said, no problem, we'll take care of it. UCLA said they didn't care about the drug. You don't have to re-inject him when you get to LA if, if we make it that far. But they said, if you're only going to send one parent, which we were because somebody had to stay with our kids, if you're only going to send one parent, send mom. Because at the time UCLA had this chiddish, this insightful idea that nursing helps cardiac recovery. Okay, and today that's 
accepted worldwide, but this was UCLA's insight. So that meant my wife, who just had a staring section, she was going to be the one flying. 11.30 at night, we are standing just outside the pedi- pediatric ICU at UCLA, at, uh, at Chartsetic, and we were both trying to give each other encouragement. I said to my wife, you know, no matter what happens, don't worry, it's all for the best. Hannah says to me, don't forget to feed the children. <laughs> the utility elevator doors open. We hear the sound of men scuffling around. Then we hear something rolling and men running towards us. As they come into the light of the pediatric ICU, we see four men pushing a stretcher with this immense glass thing strapped to the top of the stretcher. And the four men who are running towards us are all wearing these big black hats and they have these long black coats and long beards. And as they're running towards us, the payas are bouncing. As they come into the area of the pediatric ICU, one of them, the chief rabbi, yells at me, where's Kellerman? I said, I'm Kellerman. Where's the doctor who's flying with you? I said, he's in the pediatric ICU. This rabbi runs in, grabs the doctor, brings him out, says to the doctor, have you ever seen a unit like this? And there's this glass bubble with all sorts of lights and meters that are flashing and moving underneath the stretcher. There's all sorts of electronics. The doctor takes one look and says, I've never seen anything like this in my life. So the rabbi says to him, the chief rabbi says, listen carefully. And the chief rabbi starts to show him how every piece of electronic equipment works. The doctor, this hotshot doctor, is looking at the man with the long black beard and the payas, thinking like, who are you? <laughs> After about 35 minutes of training, the, the chief rabbi says to the doctor, do you understand how everything works? And the doctor says, yeah, I think I understand how everything works. And he says, great. He says, the, the rabbi says to the doctor, you stand by, we will do the transfer. And the doctor said, okay, whatever you boys say. The rabbis took the unit into the pediatric ICU. They opened up the big incubator, they took the kid out, they put him into this mobile incubator, they changed over all the pumps, the tubes, everything onto these mobile units, they strapped everything down, went running out of the pediatric ICU with the kid on the stretcher. My wife and I and the doctor went running after them. We went down to the utility elevator, we got into the utility elevator, went down to the basement. The, the elevator doors opened, these guys took off running across the parking lot in the basement. I and my wife and the doctor were running after them, right? There's one car parked in the basement, it's a van. I assume it's an ambulance. As we're running towards this van, the the rabbis run around the back of the van. They open up the back of the van. When they open up the back of the van, this van had mobile electronics hanging all across one wall, all across the other wall, and across the ceiling. The thing looked like the NASA control center. They pushed the stretcher up into into the back of the ambulance. I, three of the rabbis, and the doctor piled into the back of the ambulance. They closed up the back of the ambulance. The chief rabbi got into the front seat. My wife hopped into the passenger seat. The guy peeled out of Sharitzedek, hit the Tel Aviv Highway at 120 miles per hour. It took us to go from Jerusalem to Ben-Gurion 20 minutes. First of all, the driver, I think, was nervous, the the chief rabbi. So as soon as we hit the Tel Aviv Highway, he popped popped in Mordechai Ben-David, Jewish rock. Meanwhile, the rabbis are all over the mobile electronics, right, making all the adjustments, and the doctor and I are just holding onto a bench for dear life as this thing is flying down the highway. So the doctor's watching all the rabbis making these adjustments in electronics, and he yells over Mordechai ben David to one of the guys, where did you learn how to do this? So the guy called back without, ans- without turning around his face, he just called back, UCLA! So he doesn't look like the UCLA type, you know what I mean? <laughs> so he yells to the other guy, where did you learn how to do this? So this Yerushalmi calls back, Haved! So he calls the third guy, where did you learn how to do this? University of Paris. So the doctor's like trying to figure out who are these guys? 
The doctor, five minutes later, screams again at this, at this guy, how much do you guys get paid for a run like this? So I remember the, the rabbi, without looking back, just yelled back, how could we know? <laughs> the, the doctor was very confused. So I remember he tapped him on the shoulder. He said, no, how much money do you get? So I'll never forget the rabbi's face. When the rabbi realized what the question was, he swung around, he had this big smile on his face, and he says, Money? We do this for fun! <laughs> Zach Kaff! So who are these guys? So these guys are the... They're, they're men in Rabbi Fehrer's kolo. Rabbi Fehrer has a kolo in B'nai Brak where people just sit and learn Torah all day. And anyone who wants to can join Rabbi Fears Kolel as long as you first go someplace in the world and get emergency medical training. This was the cardiac team. And they sit and they wait until there's an emergency. And whatever kind of emergency you've got, Rabbi Fear has a team for you. And they leave the Kolel and they go and they take care of the medical emergency. This ambulance that we were driving in had been built because the last time they flew in the incubator from France, they didn't have the electronics to handle it. And so Rabbi Fehrer built a special cardiac ambulance just for this incubator. And we were the first ones who got to use it. Where does Rabbi Fehrer get his money? So he very, very quietly goes around and collects within the Orthodox community. And of course, there's no advertisements, there's no big fundraisers, no banquets, right? Everybody knows you support Rabbi Fehrer. Nobody, nobody is hesitant when Rabbi Fehrer asks. And all the people in the hospitals know this man. Sasi, the angel Abramowitz, had clued in El Al that we couldn't go through a normal security check. So El Al had decided they were going to come out and do the security check on the, on the curb for us, which is perfect. The head of El Al security, who was about four foot six and about 90 pounds soaking wet, comes out, little balding guy, yeah. He comes out and he, was going to, he decides he's going to break in a new security guy. So standing next to him is this six foot three thug from the army. You know, and his neck looks like my legs, yeah. <laughs> So the, the head of security says to him, go ahead and do the check. So this thug walks up the ambulance, I hop out, and the thug says to me, who's flying? So I said, my wife. He says, tell her to get out of the ambulance. So my wife hops out, and he says, spread eagle. So I said, you can't touch her, she's a religious woman. So the head of, the, 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 this big thug looks back at the head of security, and the head of security says, like, you know, go on. So the, guy, the, the thug turns back to my wife, and he says, where's your bags? So my wife just had a backpack. So she holds up the backpack. He grabs the backpack, goes through it. This neophyte security agent, right, hands the bag back to my wife and says, no bombs. <laughs> Genius, yeah. So then he says to me, he turns back to me, who else is flying? So I said, the doctor. Tell me out of the ambulance. So the doctor hops out. This thug puts the doctor up against the ambulance, does the full spread eagle check on him, spins him around, says, where's your bags? So the doctor says, I don't have any bags. He turns back to me, who else is flying? So I said, my son. He says, tell him to get out of the ambulance. <laughs> so I said, he can't get out, he's in the back. I want to see him. So we go to the back of the ambulance and I open up the back of the ambulance and this thug looks in the back of the ambulance, <laughs> turns to the head of the security and says, everything looks like a bomb. <laughs> So the head of security comes over, he takes one look and he realizes no way to check this thing. He says, just go out on the tarmac. The ambulance goes out to the tarmac, Rabbi Fears' men load the kid up into the plane. The LL engineers are standing by, they plug all the mobile electronics into this, into this, this patch board that they had built. 
thing goes click and snap, everything's up and running, they strap everyone down, the door of the plane closes, the plane takes off, lands in New York. I got the call after the plane landed in New York. I was waiting in the house. The, the call came in and they said that El Al did everything correctly. There was no mistakes. They didn't even taxi. They stopped on the runway. They allowed two doctors to board the plane, my sister and my brother-in-law. My sister ran back, saw what was going on, and went to comfort my wife. My brother-in-law ran up to check the baby, and when he got to the baby, he found that the ductus arteriosus, which had been half open when they left Jerusalem, was, he felt, still half open. The baby was stable. He said, Labe, it's worth it. Go all the way. Do the transfer. Transfer to TWA. Go to LA. Get the best doctor. They signaled the gate in JFK. The gate in JFK opened, and Rabbi Fear's men in New York, his Hasidim in New York, came out in an ambulance. They came up onto the plane. They did the transfer, took the baby across the airport, loaded him up onto, t- onto a TWA plane. There were 100 people waiting on this TWA plane, and they all knew what they were waiting for because they had heard the story of the kid. My wife said they loaded everybody up. Meanwhile, the TWA engineering team had been up all night trying to build this conversion board. They got everyone strapped down. They started plugging in the conversion board. My wife said there were a bunch of Christian missionaries who were on this flight, and she kept hearing in the background, Lord, save the child! Save the child! <laughs> 10 minutes goes by, 15 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by. My, watch, my wife said she was watching the battery meters on the mobile unit dropping, and my wife said she knew that when those, when those needles go down to zero and the pump stops, the kid dies. And she knew that she had to have enough power left in case this didn't work to still get the kid over to Columbia Presbyterian for the emergency surgery. 20 minutes goes by, 30 minutes goes by, 40 minutes into the wait, she hears the chief engineer say to the assistant engineer, we blew it, it's not going to work. And my wife panicked and she said, let's get this kid off the plane. So she said she heard when she said that and other people in the plane heard, she said it spread like wildfire down the plane that the kid was not going to make it. And she heard an audible groan coming from the people on the plane when everyone realized this kid was not making it to LA. You can't imagine how upset the guys on the TWA engineering team were because it was their fault that we weren't going to make it. And my wife said there was, the whole team was broken over it. There was a guy who was standing in the back who was not one of the chief engineers, but one of the guys who was working all night on the project, and he just lost it. And my wife said nobody saw because he was standing in back. He pulled a pocket knife out of his belt. He opened up this pocket knife. He just pushed through the crowd. My wife said it happened so fast nobody could stop him. He pushed through the crowd, walked up to my wife, took the pocket knife, and started hacking away on the armrest next to my wife. And everyone was just in shock looking at this guy. He reached into the hole he just made. He pulled out a water wire, started hacking away on these wires. My wife said at this point, even if the plane took off, she did not want to be on it. (laughs) This guy took these wires, started messing with the back of the box, and suddenly everything started ticking and flashing. And this man started screaming at the other engineers, you idiots! You idiots! The audio system, the audio system runs on 250 hertz. So they plugged the kid into the audio system. There was no movie that flight. (laughs) The plane took off, landed in New York, landed in Los Angeles. The, The UCLA emergency team met the kid by emergency transport, took the child off to UCLA. My wife and the doctor followed in a standard transport. They, they got him into the, into the surgical theater. Twelve hours later, they came out and they said to my wife, we were able to get out the blocked aorta, which was killing the kid. And he's now on his way to the ICU. He still has dozens of holes in his heart. And if he makes it through the next 24, 48 hours, he's going to need an, another surgery whenever he's strong enough. That could be three, four months down the line. 
three months later, the doctors held a meeting. They said the child was strong enough to do the surgery. They wanted to go ahead with it. So we donated all the blood, donated all the platelets. Everything was ready to go. So I signed the release form. We carried the baby downstairs to the place where they do the surgical prep. I handed the baby over and they said, could you please leave the room now? Because the surgical prep was very unpleasant. And I just couldn't leave. I mean, for those of you who are parents, you understand what I'm talking about. Like, this was the last few minutes I was going to have with my child, potentially. And I, I didn't mind if the child cried. I just didn't want to leave. So they ended up forcing us out of the room. Then they went behind these screens and they started working on the kid. My wife and I went back in again. And we just stood on the other side of the screens listening to the child screaming. It, that was sweeter to our ears than silence. After a few minutes, we heard the doctor's voices. They were very concerned about something. And uh, they came out and they gave us very bad news. Before I tell you what the bad news was, just one more detail you have to know about. My father had gone for a standard checkup and whatever, his, his doctor heard something funny, sent him for an echocardiogram. And the echocardiogram showed that my father had a faulty mitral valve, which is not terribly serious, but eventually you have to have it repaired. And it requires, unfortunately, an open heart surgery. And my dad asked, like, what are my options? And they said, well, you know, you have two options, but really one. There is this hot shot surgeon at UCLA. His name is Hillelax. And he does the most amazing surgery where that surgery you can't get unless you have some esoteric surgery. And your father needs a standard mitral valve replacement, so there's no way the Hillelax is going to take the case. So you have to have the standard procedure, which is they put in a, put in a plastic mitral valve. There's a good chance of rejection. Within 20 years, you'll have to have another one put in another open heart surgery. So my father said, okay, look, what are my choices? Fine. The doctors came out from behind the screen. And they said, we have bad news for you, Mr. Kellerman. We can't do the surgery on your son. My wife and I said, why not? They said, your son has a fever. I said, I can't believe it. They said, we have to wait a week. In a week, we can do it, but we have to wait till he's over the fever. So at this point, Hillelax walks in. Hillelax says, what's going on? So we say, you know, they just told us we can't do the surgery. He says, you can't do the surgery? Why not? So the doctor says, Dr. Lax, the kid has a fever. And you could see Dr. Lax was really upset about it. He's a from Jew. He was really upset. This kid's not going to get a surgery now. He really needed it. Then Dr. Lax turns to me and says, wait a minute, Kellerman, doesn't your father need an open heart surgery? I said, yeah, how'd you hear about that? He says, I go to the Daf Yomi with his doctor. <laughs> so he says, call up your father right now. Have him come down right now. All the blood had been donated. All the plates had been donated by my sisters and I. My father came down. They prepped him. He went in. Hillelax opened up my father and found that they had made a mistake when they did the echo. And he didn't just have a faulty mitral valve. He had four valves, each blocked 99%. He was a walking time bomb. He would have dropped within a week. Hillelax did a four-valve replacement. They closed up my father. My father went into the ICU. My father was in the ICU for a week. At the end of the week, they said to us, your baby's ready. I signed. The baby went in. 12 hours later, they came out. They said, Mr. Kellerman, you're a very lucky man. Your baby's okay. He's on his way to ICU. You can meet him in the elevator. We ran to the elevator. They were moving my kid up to the ICU. Han and I walked with the baby to the ICU. As we were walking into the ICU, my father was coming out. I said, bye, Dad. See you later. Yeah. My dad went out. Our baby went in. When we went in, the nurse who's, who's in charge of the ICU said, who's this one? So they said, this is Kellerman. She said, no, Kellerman just left. Who's this? <laughs> so my baby was in the ICU for another week. At the end of a week... They released him from the ICU. They put him in the normal part of the UCLA hospital. At the, end of the, 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 at the end of two weeks, they held a special meeting of all the doctors who had been involved in the case and us. They sat with us and they said, Hillelax said to us, Mr. Kellerman, a hospital is a place for sick children. 
but your child's healthy, so I think you should take him home. Go check out. And that was it. They gave me these papers. I was walking down the hallway. And I remember walking down the hallway thinking, I can't believe I'm on the other side of this story. And then I thought, wait a minute. What's checkout? They didn't ask me to check out last time. And then I realized what checkout was. I went downstairs. I handed over the papers to the office. The, the lady said, just a minute, I'll be with you. She typed, typed, typed. The computer spit out 30 pages listing every band-aid he had used, every tube, every needle, with a cost. And at the bottom, on the last page, it said, please pay this amount, arrow. And then it said, $749,000. So I laughed. I said to the lady, would you like my arm? So she said, Mr. Kelman, don't panic. She says, don't worry, we have a financial aid department. Take these forms, go downstairs. I took the forms, I'm walking out of financial aid. I figured, look, this is no problem, right? 50 bucks a month for 400 years, I'll pay this off. <laughs> I go downstairs, I hand over the papers to the lady, yeah? So the lady's gonna try to find me some sort of a loophole. So she's typing, typing, typing. She says to me, are you Puerto Rican? I said, no. <laughs> she says to me, are you black? I said, how do you mean that, you know? <laughs> So she's trying to find some loophole. So she says to me, by any chance, did your kid have an open heart surgery? I said, yeah. She says, that's great. Yeah. Typing, typing, typing. She says, okay, long shot. She says, by any chance, did you fly this kid in from out of state for the surgery? I said, yeah. She says, great. Just a minute. Type, type, type. She says, oh boy, you're not going to like this last question. By any chance, are you a California state citizen? <laughs> so like this. I'm a fanatic when it comes to elections. I voted, when I was living in Israel for the last 12 years, I voted on the water pressure for Santa Monica. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I said to her, yeah, I'm a California state citizen. There had just been an election. I said, I've got the voter tabs in my pocket. She says, you take those voter tabs, you take this form, go down to Children's Services in East LA. Okay, for those of you who here who have never been to East LA, it's sort of like Vietnam. So... I, I asked my dad, can I borrow the station wagon? I go down to East LA to the Children's Services office, which is in the, in the welfare office, right? I wait till there's no one on the street. I park the car, right? I look around, I hop out of the car, right? I say goodbye to the station wagon because it's not gonna be there when I get back, yeah, right? And I run into the building. Okay, I'm the only guy in the building, right, wearing a shirt, let alone a suit and tie, yeah? Someone comes up and says, can I help you? And they take me over to Children's Services and I hand over the papers and the lady types, types, types. And she says, okay, fine, you're all set. Take this back to UCLA. So I said, what do you mean I'm all set? She says, your bill. I said, what about my bill? She says, your bill is paid. I said, which bill is paid? She says, the 749000 it's paid. I said, who paid it? She said, they didn't tell you it's State Senate Bill 180B. I said, what is State Senate Bill 180B? So she explains that in New York, the research hospitals in order to encourage people to come in for really esoteric cases, they passed the law that if you're flying to New York State with these really weird surgeries, the state of New York will pay for it. So UCLA and USC hospitals were losing all the best surgeries. So they petitioned the state of California and said, would you pass a similar law? And the state of California said, no, we can't afford that. If someone collects, we won't be able to pay it. So UCLA came back with this proposal. Okay, how about this? Only these esoteric surgeries, and only if it's a California state citizen. So they said, no, because if somebody collects, we won't be able to pay it. So UCLA said, okay, how about this? Last try. Only these esoteric surgeries, only if it's a California state citizen who's out of state and flies back into state for the surgery. So the, state, the California state legislature said, well, that'll never happen. Fine, we'll pass that. <laughs> 
She said, the law was passed 90 days ago. You're the first ones to qualify. Okay, I had to pay a $5 parking ticket at UCLA. Five months after this child was born, we took him back to Jerusalem to perform the bris milah. Finally, we come full circle, we're ready to do the bris. The entire pediatric staff from Shari Tzedek was in attendance. They all came to watch. And this doctor came. And when he came to the bris, he was wearing a kippah and he had these strings hanging out of his pants. And I said to him, what's this? And he said to me, I saw, I saw. There were a lot of different people that were affected by this thing. There were people who started saying Birkat HaMazon because the child lived. There were people who went to mikvah for the first time at age 68 as a thank you to God because the child lived. There were all sorts of people that were affected. So I started to see like a little bit about why this had to happen. But there was one thing I didn't understand. And this is what I came to tell you tonight. And with this, I'll stop. There was one morning when I stepped up to a wall in Shari Tzedek to pray. And I felt so abandoned. And while I was feeling so abandoned, God was upstairs making all the arrangements for the auction. What was going on there? So I went to my Rebbe to talk it out with him. And I asked him what was going on. And my Rebbe said to me, we don't know very much about God. The little bit that we know, he reveals to us so that we'll copy him. So for example, God is kind so that we'll know that we should also be kind. God is merciful so that we'll know we should also be merciful. God's most obvious and most dominant character trait, a character trait that any atheist will admit God has, is God is hidden. And God hides so that we'll know that we should do kindness quietly. No fanfare, no designer labels, no big plaques, no award ceremony, just make the world better and quietly disappear. He said, when an, innocent, when, when an omnipotent God tries to hide, he can do a very good job. He said, sometimes in this world, the reality of God's existence is silence. And that's what you experienced that morning. But he said, you should know. You saw. You heard. You experienced it. While you were so panicked, feeling that you were all alone, God was taking care of the arrangements. He said, Reb that's probably not going to be the last time in your life that you feel abandoned. There might be, God forbid, other times in your life when you feel totally alone. He said, the next time that you feel alone, remember all you've heard. Remember everything you've seen. And know that you're never alone. I consider that to be a bracha. That I should know that I'm never alone. I don't know if this works, but I'd like to pass a bracha on to you. God forbid, at some point in your life, there might be times when you feel abandoned. There might be times when you feel alone. If that ever happens, think back over your life. Remember everything you've heard. Think of everything you've ever seen and know that you're never, ever alone. That concludes our presentation of Ancient Wisdom for Modern Minds by Lawrence Kellerman. For more tapes by Lawrence Kellerman, visit www.lawrencekellerman.com. That's www.lawrencekellerman.com.